Welcome to the public morality. If one conducts a Google search on the life of Frederick Douglass, invariably, the first descriptions that come up are 19th century abolitionists in order. But Douglass was so much more. His improbable journey that began enslaved to becoming a best-selling author, entrepreneur, to statesman, makes Douglass's life one of the greatest that America produced. We at the Public Morality wanted to dedicate consecutive broadcasts to the life and legacy of Frederick Douglass. Leading off our conversation is Harvard professor John Stauffer. Professor Stauffer is author of the national bestseller, Giants, The Parallel Lives of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Professor John Stauffer, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. It's great to be here. Well, let's begin with a softball question. Uh, how does Professor John Stauffer define Frederick Douglass? I define Frederick Douglass as the preeminent uh, nonfiction writer in the 19th century. Uh, he was also the preeminent activist uh, championing uh, racial equality uh, and universal freedom and true democracy. Uh, in his time, he was uh, also uh, arguably the greatest orator uh, of the 19th century during the golden age of oratory. Uh, as David Blight and others have pointed out, um, Douglas spoke to more Americans, to more people than anyone else in the 19th century, with the possible exception of Mark Twain. Uh, and he was also uh, the most photographed American of the 19th century. I and two colleagues did a book um, recognizing that there are more separate photos from Douglas than from any other 19th century American, which highlights his um, public presence, his fame. He was a household name uh, throughout uh, the nation. And uh, he really devoted his life uh, to this vision of a true democracy. Invariably, I'm glad um, you, you led with him being a prolific writer. So invariably, when you think about Douglas, uh, he's defined as an ab abolitionist and an orator. Mm -hmm. And it, it subliminally places his literary skills in a secondary position. Um, is that accurate? And if so, how do you account for that? No, I actually, I don't, because I, I see his literary skills and his oratorical skills as a pair. I mean, Douglas uh, had, Douglas was very musical and great writers. And we know that Douglas did this. He would practice his, when he would write something, he would then, he would orate it. And he would trust his ear for the rhythm of the prose. And all of his speeches, most of his speeches, especially his great speeches, like What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, he first wrote it down. And as he was writing it, he would uh, orate it himself. He would orate it, and then he would practice it. Uh, he was extremely dedicated as an orator and as a writer, but he saw the two go hand in hand. Um, he, he, he saw writing and oratory as, uh, as, a, as a pair, as twin endeavors. 
Uh, and uh, it, in, it's one of the reasons why he was he was so successful is he recognized the music of words, um, both in written form um, and in uh, oratory and in uh, as a public speaker. By most accounts, Douglas is born in 1818. Uh, he yeah. escapes in 1838. Right. He writes Narrative Life of Frederick Douglass, 1845, a seminal work. Right. At any point, did he ever receive any formal education? No, he never received any formal education, which is part of the the um, the awe with which I and many others see him. No formal education. But we know that he uh, what he as a young boy, he loved words and he recognized as a young boy the power of words. And so when he was uh, an enslaved person in Baltimore uh, and he was brought to Baltimore from the Eastern Shore from the as plantation and to be a playmate with Tommy Ald and uh, Sophia Ald, uh, the um, uh, Hugh Ald's uh, wife, taught um, her son his ABCs essentially taught him how to write. Douglas was there and Sophie Ald had uh, never before. Uh, it was the first time that um, in the house that she um, that she was in charge of an enslaved person. Douglas was a little boy and Douglas asked her if he could if she could teach him uh, how to read as well. And she didn't realize uh, the power of literature, the power of language. And so she started giving him his ABCs. And then Hewald um, saw her teaching Douglas how to read. And he, in front of Douglas himself, um, stopped that by saying to his wife, the easiest way to unfit a slave for slavery is to get, teach him how to read and write. And Douglas then internalized that and said, if that's the case, I'm going to do everything I can to read and write. And so he would he he lived in a neighborhood in uh, Baltimore in which there were a lot of immigrant boys. And he would fill his pockets with biscuits that uh, Sophia um, all had made. And he would trade biscuits for words on the streets of Baltimore. Um, he also would write uh, sentences in chalk on Baltimore. I mean, he was obsessed with learning how to master uh, uh, language and literacy and recognized its power. And his very first, in a sense, job was when he was, he then um, was sent to Hewald's um, uh, uh, brother and he was on the Eastern shore as a slave and he um, surreptitiously, essentially illegally uh, taught slaves, um, uh, taught fellow slaves to, uh, to read and write as well. Um, so he, from a time he was a, a kid, he recognized uh, its power. And as David Blyde and others have pointed out, the Colombian order, which um, he got his hands on when he was in Baltimore, he went into a used clothing store. He had, he had um, raised money by shining shoes and doing other odd jobs on the streets of Baltimore. And he um, purchased uh, this uh, Colombian order, which is a collection of speeches and writings uh, by Caleb Bingham, one of the great educators in the United States, to teach young boys how to read. It was a period before a lot of kids had formal school. 
So Douglas acquired this Colombian order, again, kept it secret, um, and essentially memorized the, the various uh, chapters of, um, of uh, public speaking and the description of how one should uh, articulate oneself as an orator. And he really, he treated it as a, uh, and was obsessed with it in the same way that an artist or an athlete who wants to become a professional artist or athlete would do so today. And that really touches on, you know, some, some, some of your work because if you pull back the barriers of race, there are some stark similarities between the emergence of Frederick Douglass and that of Abraham Lincoln. Could you say more about that? <laughs> yeah, so I did a book on the parallel lives of Douglass and Lincoln, that, and I was struck by the fact that um, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln are widely seen as two of the greatest uh, nonfiction writers and orators. I think Douglass is far superior. Lincoln at his best in his second inaugural in his Gettysburg Address is extraordinary. But Lincoln was also a politician, and so a lot of his writings are uh, clunky and wonkish, and uh, it's not considered um, great prose. Whereas Douglas, as a you know, he his words, language itself was foundational for him in trying to transform society. But both Douglas and Lincoln were similar. L Lincoln had less than a year of formal education. Douglas had no formal education. They both grew up in raw, violent um, frontier communities, the eastern shore of Maryland, that for Link in Lincoln's case, the backwoods of Illinois until he moved to uh, uh, Springfield, uh, and both recognized uh, the significance of of um, of words, of speaking, of writing, in uh, rising up, uh, and uh, both became, um, in my view, the among the two greatest Americans uh, in the nineteenth century. In fact, Douglas was more famous than Lincoln. Um, until uh, really, until Lincoln ran for president in eighteen sixty. Uh, and uh, Douglas knew of Lincoln as a uh, as a Illinois um, as an Illinois congressman. In fact, uh, critiqued um, uh, one of Lincoln's speeches when he served one term in the House of Representatives. Uh, and uh, and Douglas all always knew that Lincoln. Uh, was uh, not a radical, not an abolitionist. And, and in fact, Douglas did not vote for Lincoln in 1860. He voted for the Radical Abolition Party president, Garrett Smith, his friend. Uh, and uh, Douglas ended up meeting Lincoln three times in the White House. They declared publicly themselves as friends, which, and friendship then um, had a much more significant uh, understanding than it does today. Um, friendship today has become a kind of commodity. Then friendship meant equality among two people. And it was almost as though two people were united, that the souls of two people were united. So there was this, uh, this rich, um, almost religious commonality. Uh, and uh, public by publicly calling themselves friends, it reflected their understanding of equality. And Lincoln, in fact, um, in the second in his second meeting with Douglas, he asks Douglas. It's in 1864. 
um, Douglas or Lincoln is worried. He's he's almost certain he's going to lose the reelection. So he asks Douglas to spearhead really what's the beginning. What it's the first instance of the special forces of uh, to pick some hand picked African Americans who know the southern landscape. Uh, who are free and in the north and re- and um, retrieve as many blacks as possible so they can join the Union Army and navies and uh, chain turn the tide of war so that there can be a major military victory to get Lincoln reelected. Because at the time, uh, mo- a lot of northerners, in fact, arguably Lincoln would have lost the reelection in 1864. Uh, to a, um, a Copperhead uh, Democrat, a McClellan, uh, and uh, and had that happened, it would have been essentially a Confederate victory. And uh, Douglas re- starts to recruit these African Americans to create essentially it's like the Green Beret or uh, Navy SEAL um, special forces. And when Sherman takes Atlanta and marches to the sea. Uh, that cha- dr- dramatically changes the tide, and Lincoln knows he'll be reelected. So Douglas never has to act on that, um, you know, follow through on the plan. But it highlights the degree to which Lincoln recognized um, Douglas's uh, uh, significance and influence. Uh, and in their third meeting at the, um, it was uh, at the second inaugural. Douglas, in fact, I can. I have a photograph. There's a photograph um, of Douglas. He literally has a first row seat. He's um, uh, is standing just literally a few yards from where Lincoln is standing. There's also um, in the photograph um, John Wilkes Booth uh, in the stands, um, who's at that time planning to kidnap Lincoln in return for re- um, releasing a lot of prisoners of war in the South. Um, the upshot is Douglas, after Lincoln's uh, second inaugural, goes to the White House. Um, he's first uh, turned away by a white policeman, um, finally enters the East Room of the White House. And when Lincoln sees him, um, he raises his hand and says, here comes my friend Frederick Douglass. Um, I saw you in the crowd today. Um, uh, there is no one in these United States whose opinion I value more than yours. What did you think of my address? And we know that Lincoln said this because there was a woman next to Lincoln who kept a diary and and recorded that in her diary. And uh, Lincoln uh, uh, Lincoln said that was, uh, or Douglas said that was a sacred effort, his inaugural address, which is, in my view, the greatest um, inaugural address in American history. We also know it's true because we've had um, Harold Hoser on the public morality and he yeah. told that story almost verbatim. So either you and Harold shared <laughs> notes before you came on or. <laughs> so or I know Harold. Yes, he's I know Harold. he's um, he's great. And I mean, we both know that story. I mean, I, I, I wrote that in um, in. Uh, uh, the Giants is the name of the book, The Parallel Lives of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And Harold was working on a book himself. And uh, but it's it's a great story. It's a great story. And it's a you know, it's a we it's a true story. We can doc as scholars, we can document um, what uh, each person said. You know, you touched on um, the, you know, the oratory skills of, of Douglas and, and 
And in the mid-19th century, being a great orator was, in the 21st century context, being a rock star or being a professional yeah. athlete. Yeah. And, and, and one tends to forget that it was Everett, Ed, Edward Everett and not Abraham Lincoln who was the keynote at Gettysburg. So being an, a great orator, yes. um, we don't have a comparison today in, in, that, in that sense, how, so how important Douglas was to the public discourse. Right, right. No, that's true. And Edward Everett was a great order in a older tradition. I mean, his, you know, Edward Everett, when he gave his address at uh, Gettysburg, is a two-hour address, and it's verbose and long. And Douglas, there are a couple of speeches of Douglas that were over an hour, but Douglas um, was, I think, was far better than Edward Everett in his ability to um, to uh, to keep audiences focused on um, on the on what he's saying by uh, by uh, various um, literary um, examples. So he would uh, he would frame it almost as a um, as a as a uh, as a uh, posing the question and not and posing it a really powerful um, interesting question and and then withholding the answer until a little bit later. Um, so the, the, another way of saying this is that Douglas, I think, is is far better than Edward Everett at creating a narrative momentum so that as listeners and as readers we are obsessed and we are completely focused on every word that the order is saying because of uh, this uh, this forward narrative powerful momentum uh, we're gasping almost um, uh, on each word and Everett was more in the traditional um, 18th, uh, 18th century early 19th century style whereas Douglas and Lincoln both they, as writers and as speakers, were much more of in the modern era at, at that time. When Douglas writes his first autobiographical text in 1845, correct me, if I'm, I don't know if I have the history here right, yeah. but was he not also a fugitive from justice? And if so, yeah. yes. did that impact his credibility? He was, uh, there were one or two early, when right after the book came out, one or two early um, accusations that he was a fraud because his writing was so good. In fact, there was one editorial in um, Boston newspaper said, there's no way that you could have been a slave. You must have had training somewhere because no one writes like that who's never had formal training. And uh, Douglas uh, responded um, very forcefully uh, and uh, so he, there were a lot of people who were in shock. The biggest effect of his narrative was that um, it was so popular that it reached the South and Hugh and Thomas Alda's legal owners um, wanted to capture him. In fact, Hugh Ald uh, wrote a article, uh, an editorial in the bus in the Baltimore newspaper saying that he was going to go to any length possible to recapture his property. And that prompted the American Anti-Slavery Society, the organization, um, the abolitionist society that Douglas was uh, was um, hired to give speeches for. Um, they sent him to um, British Isles for two years uh, for protection 
And when he returned, British sympathizers purchased his freedom, and he was a free man. Um, and so it's a that story just it highlights the the power of Douglas's oratory. And um, Douglas Douglas's narrative is so masterful and so beautiful because he he practiced a lot of that narrative on the stump as a public speaker and he could he could um he could uh he could understand or he could um recognize whether or not you know a uh a five pages or ten pages of what became the book um had power and had a narrative momentum that um readers would enjoy so it was a and it was that was not uncommon for the few really talented writers and orators like Douglas in, in that he would first practice um, his uh, prose as a speaker and see how it would go and then would put it into um, into a text and publish it. And it's why most of Douglas's uh, speeches were then published as pamphlets. And often this, the pamphlets were a little different slightly different from the speech because Douglas wanted to correct what he saw was um, not exactly what he what he wanted based on the response uh, in his in his uh, writing, uh, which is it makes a lot of sense. I mean, writers today through the 20th and 21st century, some of the greatest writers um, practice, they test out their drafts by orating them out loud. So the best example is Flaubert. Flaubert, after everything Flaubert wrote, after um, every other day or so, he would open the window and loudly orate what he wrote and see how it sounded, and then he would revise. And we know Douglas did that. I mean, we see that. I've seen drafts of, of some of Douglas's great speeches and the early drafts He's marking them up and then revising them for publication. Anyone, at least in the American narrative that I'm familiar with, that's bestowed with the title of greatness, however, however we define that, in, invariably has a complicated life. And, and would Douglas fall into that category for you? Yeah, he he was, um, I, and I completely agree with you, he did have a complicated wife. He was... Because of his profession, because of his as a orator and activist, he was on the road a lot. So, um, and Douglas understood this. He recognized that the the cost of his profession and of being a public famous figure, and he was he was he was not really interested in fame. What he was interested in is transforming, radically transforming the United States. And recognizing that words uh, could do that, um, but as a father, he was he was pretty much absent. Um, in fact, I speculated that um, his two youngest children, when they were two or three years old, probably didn't recognize Douglas because he was on the road so much. So there are you know there are sacrifices that that one has to make if you are a great um, I'll say artist. Uh, in this case, writer and orator, uh, in terms of uh, domestic life, in terms of family. And in fact, it was part of the tension between um, Douglas's uh, wife and himself. I mean, they had a, ultimately a good marriage, but there was a lot of tension or strain because you know, he, was, he was largely absent from home. 
Well, since you mentioned his wife, uh, his first wife, Anna Murray, yeah. uh, talk about her role in Frederick Douglass becoming the person that he would become. She was indispensable. So she was very well organized. There's a debate on whether or not, I mean, first of all, she grew up on the Eastern shore of Maryland. Um, she was free. They met in Baltimore. It was Anna Murray that en enables, if not helps Douglas escape because she was a free African-American. Um, she worked as a, um, uh, domestic servant in a house and it was her money that allowed Douglas to take a train to freedom and it was her money that uh, allowed them to bring items uh, that they would care that um, with they would settle when they moved to New Bedford after escaping um, and uh, she was the one who made sure that the house was in order when Douglas was ready for a road trip. She would make sure that all of his shirts were pressed and his clothes were neat. And Douglas always dressed up. He always um, he was immaculate in the way he dressed. He wanted to present himself. He did present himself as a as a leader, as a national leader, a kind of statesman. Um, so she was she was absolutely indispensable and understood um it understood, recognized the importance of his work, um, but also was frustrated that, and you know, she didn't frustrated that he couldn't be at home more. You know, there's the, the, there there are these key moments in a person's life when you look back. So when I look back at Douglas's life, and I'd like to have you comment on this, he's born on a plantation, right. then he goes to Baltimore, right. then he comes back to. Uh, the plantation. I'm wondering, right. does the Baltimore experience really galvanize for him that being enslaved is just not an option for him? Yeah, I think that that, that experience in Baltimore, because he in Baltimore, he saw a large number. Baltimore was a black metropolis and there were a lot of fugitives or free or legally free blacks working in Baltimore. It was uh, it was a true, a profoundly integrated city um, in the sense of blacks and whites together and a number of foreigners. And so he recognized, he witnessed on numerous occasions um, free blacks who were working with him in the shipyards when he uh, got, a, you know, as a teenager, when he got a job. Um, and it's, it's, it's in part um, working with um either free or fugitive blacks um, in the in the shipyards that in part inspired him to strike for his freedom um, as soon as he could. And but recognize that that uh, he, he needed to be very careful, you know. Um, and so the the African-American presence in Baltimore, I think, was hugely important and an inspiration for Douglas. You know, the, the, the life of Douglas is incomparable. I mean, as, as you pointed out, um, in 1864, 1865, Lincoln refers to him. I mean, 64, I think Lincoln refers to him as his friend in the second yes. inaugural. Yes. And but it seems, at least to me, that Douglas was largely outside of academia, ignored by public discourse. How is that possible? Because this is an un you, you couldn't make this life up. Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, the, the short answer is that 
academia at this time um, was very elitist. Uh, and so most professors then would, even if they respected Douglas as a, as the um, uh, a kind of, as, an, as, a, as, as a famous, um, brilliant orator and writer, uh, they, m most professors uh, at Harvard and at Yale and at other universities, and there weren't that many universities at the time, um, would not have seen him as a scholar in the way um, that he was. But he was, frankly, a much better writer, a much better writer. And it was also a period in which um, receiving a college degree um, was not was not that important in becoming successful. And Douglas is the prime example of that. Um, uh, another example would be um, who was probably the the person who was closest to Douglas in terms of his talent and fame, arguably in the 19th century, uh, was Mark Twain. And Mark Twain is was absolutely a household name. Mark Twain was is he's the only person who, who may have given more speeches than uh, Douglas. Uh, he was considerably younger than Douglas, um, but Twain had no um, college education. Had um, he had some school years, um, but like Douglas, he fell in love with words and started his career as an apprentice um, for a newspaper. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on the public rally is to discuss specifically Douglas and July 5th, 1852, and his address about the 4th of July. Right. Revealing, I'm going to reveal my own bias here uh, as a prompt for you. This is one of the most underappreciated and misunderstood pieces of oratory in U.S. letters. Your thoughts? I agree with that. I completely agree with that. I think it's uh, it's it's one in my view, this speech is the greatest uh, work of oratory and of an essay because most people read it. Um, but to fully appreciate it, you need to hear it uh, in the 19th century. It's and it's a um, uh, it's a, uh, a Jeremiah. Um, and the Jeremiah is, so Jeremiah is a song or story of lament. And it, and it, uh, the origins of the Jeremiah was the pure, were the Puritans. Um, so Cotton Mather, when he would give a sermon was often a Jeremiah. Um, so it had multiple parts and it was a song or story of lament that both highlighted, uh, the, problems or the sins of a community, but its function was to lift up and rally uh, the listeners uh, to reform or transform the community uh, so that it became a good, righteous uh, demo or democratic uh, community. And Douglas, um, Cotton Mather himself as an orator, um, often used the form of the Jeremiah, but so there's a long tradition of the Jeremiah in the United States. No one touches Douglas in terms of uh, mastering the form of the Jeremiah. It's a three-part structure. You know, he begins by putting his audience at ease. It's a mostly um, hometown crowd. It's in uh, Rochester where he's living. 
um, running a newspaper. Uh, he devotes a lot of time to it. In a letter to Garrett Smith, he says he devoted more time to this speech than any other. He was really obsessed with getting it right. And uh, so it's a hometown crowd and that most of the listeners are um, anti-slavery folks or abolitionists. There's a disproportionately large number of women. Um, and he begins by putting his audience at ease and he begins by referring to you. You have good reasons to celebrate the 4th of July. And in a Jeremiah, the, and this is an unusual Jeremiah, it's a, it's a three-part structure. Um, so he begins by putting his audience at ease, and he begins by, in a sense, celebrating the founders, despite their almost all of their slaveholding, except for um, John Adams, uh, and uh, saying that someone like Washington is a practical uh, abolitionist. <laughs> and uh, then he... he he, there's the, the break into the second part of this Jeremiah is when he says, you know, excuse me, you know, what do I have to do with your 4th of July? Um, he refers to himself as a enslaved person, even though he's illegally free for rhetorical effect. And then most of the speech, he just excoriates the United States, highlighting all the ways in which it's essentially a totalitarian state. And then he ends by, and most of the speech is this vigorous critique of what slavery has done uh, to the nation uh, and its expansion and how and why it continues to expand. And then he lifts his audience up at the end by saying, I end where I began with hope. And he relies on his faith in God. And at the very end, he refers to this kind of almost a, a second coming, a celestial transformation that will help realize the, the, the true um, egalitarian and democratic ideals. And that's, that's just a very a rough um, kind of uh, structural um, summary of the speech but each sentence is just is just it's um, it's carved in gold, is the best way to characterize <laughs> it. Um, and it's it's definitely I teach it every year among many other um, works, and I tell my students this is something if you don't actually read it out loud, um, you know, enunciate each word so you can appreciate the music, the music of this speech. And in a sense, that's what a Jeremiah is. It's a, a form of music. Well, I um, also teach, teach this speech, and I juxtapose, I also teach it alongside William Lloyd Garrison's Fourth of July address yes. several decades earlier. Yes. And it seems to me what's the, the, the primary difference between um, Garrison's address and Douglas's address is what you mentioned. Douglas's ability to put people at ease with accurate historical critique and remembrance of the founding era. He even acknowledges that the signing was July 2nd. And whereas yes. Garrison seems to just go, he's more strident, more John the Baptist, just going yes. right through yeah. the throat. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and so he doesn't, waste any time if you will with what you call the first move he hasn't wasted time with that first movement he just goes right for the throw and that seems to be the difference between the two speeches in my view yeah yeah no i completely agree i think that's a great i think that's a great point that's a great point i mean garrison himself was uh, i mean he um 
Garrison shot bullets in his prose. Um, and he and he was very effective at doing that. And I, he was very effective at doing that. And he recognized the great speech speaker. I mean, it was it was Garrison in large part who recognized Douglas's brilliance and potential at transforming the American anti-slavery society when it's Douglas, his first vacation after he moves to New Bedford is he goes to Nantucket for the annual American anti-slavery society meeting. And that's where, that's where Douglas um, is able, um, he gives a speech and Garrison is so impressed that he hires him on the spot to be uh, the speaker for the American anti-slavery society and Douglas's influence I mean, is is it's been documented. He'll go to a town in which virtually no one is anti-slavery or, or an abolitionist, and give three speeches. In the first speech, there might be ten or fifteen people there, and because he's so good, they tell their friends. And by the last speech he gives in the town, there are you know three quarters of the entire population of the town or city there to listen to Douglas. That's how effective he was. And Garrison was a very good order, but nothing like nothing like um, uh, Douglas. There, there's something else that Douglas does that I think that we could take right into the 21st century. As you point out in that, in the set, we'll call it the second movement. When you point out in the second movement, when he uses your, I think he uses over a hundred times. Yes, your, yes, your. Yes. But, he, <laughs> but he makes a distinction between the July 4th celebration. Yes. And the words of the Declaration of Independence. In other, in other words, he holds the virtue of America in one hand and the hypocrisy in America of America in the other. And that's a that seems to me, my view, my words, a lost art. Your thoughts, sir. Completely agree. I think that's very well put. And that is a lost art that Douglas um even then it was something of a lost art. And that's where that's where the the former structure of the Jeremiah um, enables Douglas to recover that lost art. That's a very good point. And and it was a period in which, I mean, for the the whole form of the Jeremiah um, was uh, was no longer as nearly as popular as it had been fifty years earlier or even a hundred years earlier. I mean, it's still being used at times, but most orators who use it don't even recognize it as uh, Jeremiah. So the, the one example, I mean, it's, it's a very crude version, but I think it was hugely influential is that, and it's, it's diametrically opposite in every way to Frederick Douglass. But um, I think one of the reasons, a major reason really why Donald Trump was elected president is because of his, um, the jargon, his his very short Jeremiah, make America great again, uh, which is, you know, re this reflection of this declension and we're going to try to lift up uh, the nation. I don't think he has any idea what a Jeremiah is, um, right. but he unfortunately is um, is a, a, a very effective public speaker. I could see Frederick Douglass just coming out of his skin. Oh, I know. Um, about again on the word again, make America great again. I can just see <laughs> yes, yes. Um, in completely opposite ways. As, as... 
yeah, yeah. I could see Douglas saying again, assumes a before. So yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. That's right. <laughs> Where is the again? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. On the plantation in Baltimore. When you know, when? Yeah. yeah. Tell me. Um, tell me when it. When you tell. Give me a sense of when it was once great. Yeah, right. <laughs> Truly, in um, a democratic sense. I, I'm wondering. Uh, we, we've talked about Douglas in, in, in the creation of who Douglas became. When you think about him addressing this uh, Rochester audience on July 5th, uh, is there, in your view, a subversive side of this speech in that Douglas wanted the largely white audience in Rochester who invited him uh, to know that he possessed a superior knowledge of American history? That's a great question. I think um, he, yes, I think because his most of his audience, um, most of the, uh, the his audience was that not only literate, but um, were saw themselves as intellectuals. And he wanted to show that despite his lack of formal education, uh, he could um, he could out he could beat them at their own game. He could beat them at their own game uh, in his in the beauty of his words and the sophistication, um, the immensely rich sophistication of the speech. Uh, and in a sense, uh, the reason I say that is that this mostly intellectual uh, group, I mean, they were they were absolutely um over uh, just overwhelmed by the brilliance of this speech at the time and we know that from letters that some of the some of the audience members would write letters to the family members who lived elsewhere and said you know this was it was one of the high point one of the intellectual high points of their lives of hearing this speech and douglas of course he published it both as a pamphlet so it gets circulated widely um and the people who read it um, it was a best-selling pamphlet during a period in which the pamphlet had uh, was for, was more popular than books, partly because it was much cheaper. But his pamphlet uh, it it uh, it his pamphlet sold everywhere in the North. It was not allowed to be sold in the South. By this point, Southerners prohibited any kind of anti-slavery uh, pamphlet or speech um, or writing to get circulated in in the slave states. I want to move to from Douglas the radical to Douglas the insider. Okay. And I want to, and this is uh, where I chart the beginning of his being an insider, and you can certainly um, correct me. I would say that the beginning of Douglas being the consummate insider began with the ratification of the 15th Amendment when he had to sell. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony on leaving women out of the vote that he would uh, work with them to for women for women's suffrage. Um, and so he's he's taking the role uh, of of the insider to, to compromise women um, falling short on their civic their civic rights. Your thoughts, sir? Yeah, I think that is. Um that's a very good place to to start i mean douglas i mean the difference between douglas as 
as an insider, as a politician, and Douglas as a radical activist, is that um, that and in fact, I in my view and a few others, um, the uh, uh, the most successful radical activists become pragmatists and insiders. And that's how social change really occurs, is when you have radicals at the margins working with um, with politicians and insiders uh, to achieve social change, where you have to where you have to make compromises, where you you can't have everything you want. Um, but it's it brings everyone together, even though they come from different perspectives. That's where that's where you have ma- major social change occurs. And every scholar recognizes the transformation of the United States. Really, it becomes an a, a entirely new nation with the war and the uh, the uh, constitutional amendments. Um, and and that's a great example, because Douglas, throughout his life, was a major champion of equal rights for women. He was one of the very few men at the very first women's rights convention at Seneca Falls. He was one of only, I think, three men at the entire convention and and stood up and gave a speech advocating for women for the right to vote in 1848. And in fact, the majority of women thought that was too radical in their vote. But, you know, that's Douglas in 1848. And but he recognizes in that the 15th Amendment to pass it in one form or another is crucial. And Douglas and uh, every other radical recognize that there's no way the amendment is going to be passed if it if it includes uh, women. And so Douglas, I mean, he 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 told uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other uh, female um activist leaders that let's just get this 15th amendment passed and we will immediately advocate for another amendment that allows for women uh, unrestricted suffrage. And of course it, it's the end of this kind of revolutionary moment. So it takes another like 50 years for uh, the, uh, the um, was it the 18th amendment? Um, 19th. Uh, 19th amendment is passed and but D- neither Douglas or any other radical. I mean, the the they didn't realize how quickly this revolutionary um, moment would end. And that's the problem with revolution: is that re- a revolutionary um, era or moment is one in which you can get dramatic radical change quickly. And that happened in the U.S. It happened in France. It happened in other period, era, uh, nations that have true revolutions. But the problem with revolution is, one, it's not going to last very long. So there's a short window in which you can get a lot of change. And two, uh, you don't know which way the revo- you know, a revolution can suddenly go be- become a counter-revolution, um, which is, and it's usually bloody. Uh, and Douglas recognized that, but he also recognized that um, that uh, slavery was bloody as well. So is racism. I would imagine, regardless of how improbable Douglas's life became, one does not easily overcome the scars of slavery. In your research, where might those scars, especially in the latter years of Douglas's life, re- reveal themselves? That's a great question. <laughs> These are great questions. That's especially a great question. Um, I, I think it reveals himself. It, it, Douglas reveals the, uh, in a sense, 
reveals his scars by hiding them. You know, Douglas always presented himself as someone who is very put together. He always dressed up. He was all he practiced every speech before he gave it. He was always seen as this um, awe-inspiring figure, uh, and he also had his demons. Um, he also his his private life. Um, he kept very private, uh, and he wanted it that way. He recognized a um, a vigorous boundary between public life and private life, and in his private life, he was. Um, that's where he could. That's where one. Uh, you we have glimpses of it in some of his correspondence and from others. Um, particularly, I, can't, I mean, he and Anna would have um, would have arguments at times, uh, and uh, you know, she was she was on she was she was right, and he was in a sense wrong. Um, but that's where that's where I, I think Douglas's scar Douglas hid his scars in by not wanting to expose his private life in his last autobiography i mean does he does he even mention any of his in any of his autobiographies does he mention any of his wives or his children do they even get mentioned they do but they get less than a sentence they get less than a sentence um, because in his and so there's been a, a lot of criticism of him for that for basic especially Anna um in that he uh you know it was Anna was the one without Anna there's a very high chance that Douglas would have been unable to successfully escape from slavery as he did she was instrumental in um, because she was a free black woman, she had money. Uh, they those were th they were f crucial to succeeding at, in uh, escaping from slavery. Um, and Douglas uh, really never publicly um, uh, acknowledged uh, her indispensable um, influence and help in Douglas's career. At that time, it that was not uncommon. But it's also he was. If 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 you want to um, if you're someone who has a lot of scars uh, and uh, wants to keep them uh, you know wants to uh, control them by not focusing on them and especially not making them public, that's what Douglas did. Um, he made sure that his private life was truly private. Um, and so it's a very different era. And in fact, that was not at all uncommon um, in f for men and women um, to uh, separate their private from public lives. And today it's much more a sense of the public is private and the private is public. Okay, Professor John Stauffer, um, we've just made you the chairperson of the American Historical Pantheon Society. Um, you can put Douglas in the first tier, second tier, or third tier. Where do you put him and why? Put him in the first tier, of course. I mean, why? Because he is, I, I, as I said, he is the preeminent um, order 
nonfiction orator and writer in the 20 in the 19th century, um, which and at a time in which public speaking is one of the leading forms of um, politics, of discourse and of um, entertainment. Um, he was he was the most famous figure in the United States for much of that period as an orator and as a writer. Um, he influenced, in fact, he 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 influenced Lincoln. He he met with um, and advised every president thereafter until his death. No no other um, no other figure outside of Congress. Uh, uh, had that kind of record of meeting, what is it, six presidents and advising six presidents. He was also uh, gifted um, as, you know, as with, with very good health overall. He was also a very tall, strong man. He was uh, six, roughly six feet two, and the average height of men was about five feet six or seven. That, was, that made a difference. You know, had he been someone who was five six, five five, um, would he have been the kind of leader um, that he was? It would have been much harder. He do, he wouldn't have had the ability to fend off um, uh, white racists who wanted to beat him up or kill him. And there were numerous instances where he had to use his fists to uh, defend himself. Well, let me just say, had you put Douglas in the second or third tier, I don't know if we would have ran this conversation. We probably said, nah, we, we're, we're, uh, but you gave yeah. a, a, a compelling reason why, and that's what we were after. Yeah, and John- I, would, I would also just say that if you know, anyone who spends time, and you do, it does require time, spending time really reading Douglas or, or looking at his photographs. I mean, he is he is by far the most – um, he's by far the most uh, elegant and beautiful and eloquent um, sitter for a photograph. He understood the the art of photography as a sitter better than anyone else. And if you actually spend time with his writing um, and and treat it seriously, and so you hear the music, you have to slow down when you read Douglas because it is that musical. It's similar to Moby Dick. You cannot read Moby Dick fast. Um, you cannot read Douglas fast and appreciate him. Um, and uh, if you do that, and if you um, look at his photographs, I don't think anyone would then deny um, Douglas's um, uh, significance in the, the, the top of the first pantheon. I mean, he really was, in my view, the, the most important figure in the United States in the 19th century. Professor John Stauffer, Harvard University, thank you, sir, for joining me today on the Public Around. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you. It's been a, it's been enjoyable and an honor to be in conversation with you, Byron. That was, thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook, as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere.
The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.